Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. I hope you all had a spectacular summer. We took a couple months off, traveled across the country, rode some roller coasters, and ate lots of fried fair food. But now we're all rested up and ready for a new school year and a new season of podcast episodes. We begin that new season today by celebrating Constitution Day, as we do every year on September 17th, the anniversary of the adoption of the U.S. Constitution in Philadelphia in 1787. In past years, we invited a historian to discuss his or her historical research related to the Constitution. This time, I'm doing something a little bit different. Rather than present one lengthy lecture on some aspect of the Constitution, I have invited three scholars to talk about the importance of the Constitution to their own work, but also the importance of the Constitution to all Americans. We've met two of the three before. Longtime listeners will recognize Chris Klein from our very first episode and Bob Irvine from our second episode. We didn't even have a title for this podcast series yet. We were all so young and naive and baby-faced. Simpler times, good memories. Anyway, I've dragged them back into our virtual studio to discuss their work, so we'll get to hear about the relationship between the U.S. Constitution and the Whiskey Rebellion from Chris, and we will hear about Native American sovereignty and environmental regulation within the constitutional context from Bob. Finally, to round things out, I've invited a new guy, Jeff Zarnick, who runs SNHU's criminal justice program, to talk about the role that the Constitution, especially the Fourth Amendment, plays in everyday police work. I hope everybody has a good time. First up, we're going to talk to Chris Klein. So, Chris, can you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Chris Klein, and I'm an adjunct instructor here at Southern New Hampshire University, and I've been teaching with SNHU for almost five years now, and it's been an exciting five years in the graduate program, and my research background is in I have a master's degree in both American history and diplomacy, so I kind of take those two and combine them together for a very interesting discussion. And, um, you know, in terms of the early American period, that is where I focused my uh, research for the history program that I completed, uh, specifically on the Whiskey Rebellion and why it had to occur in southwestern Pennsylvania. And so, obviously, one of the, the Whiskey Rebellion is one of those things that always comes up when we're talking about the adoption of the Constitution, uh, because it kind of demonstrated the importance of the Constitution, especially in the wake of things like the Articles of Confederation and the various other in, incarnations of this new American government in the wake of the Revolution. So, what role did the Constitution play in your um, in your research and in that final project on the Whiskey Rebellion? Well, it was huge because one of the interesting things about it is you know, when we talk about the Whiskey Rebellion as it relates to its importance and why, you know, why, what does it matter? You know, why is it significant and things like that? You have the embodiment of the issues around the formation of the first party system that really have their roots in the constitutional convention between the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist. And, you know, what's the role of government? And from there, you just have this whole other plethora of issues that will arise out regarding taxation. You know, um, you can talk about infrastructure. You can talk about uh, divisions between, you know, the coastal elites, for example, which is a historical term to bring it into the modern era. You still hear that idea, you know, versus those who live more inland, the heartland, those areas, combined with the fact that, you know, following the Constitutional Convention in the early 1790s, we want to keep in mind that Western Pennsylvania was the equivalent of the Wild West. Right. You know, that was the Western frontier. That was where the issues from, you know, Native American incursions and, you know, issues with borders and boundaries. And, you know, really, again, what does that do? Censors back to the idea of what's the role of the government. And so what were your general conclusions to in, in all of that research? Was it that the the Constitution did bring about an important change out of that kind of, because you're right, yeah, the, the, US, the Western frontier at that point. And so what role did this new Constitution play? How was it well, how was it received by the people out in this kind of Western frontier? And how did it, how did it play out as, as people in that Western frontier tried to kind of assimilate into this new nation that's developing along the Eastern seaboard? Well, I think that's a twofold answer. And I'll tell you why. Um, one of the things we do want to keep in mind is that the events in and around Western Pennsylvania, um, on the one hand, were not done to challenge the Constitution. Um, 
even though some would argue that the potential discussion around the formation of a new area called Westsylvania um, in Western Pennsylvania is directly a confrontation to the Constitution. But you have to look deeper than that and see why were they doing what they were doing. And this is where you have that huge disconnect, again, between the role of the government and what does the Constitution spell out. All the people in Western Pennsylvania wanted to do was live. Mm -hmm. And in the East, you had that lack of understanding is why is whiskey used? It wasn't a luxury to them in Western Pennsylvania. Whiskey was a form of payment. Whiskey was how they paid their rent. I mean, you, you can get down through the differing ways in which they would barter with it. And the other thing that was not understood in the East was the importance of farming and being self-sufficient and sustaining and all those differing ideas, you know, as it relates to using what they had on their land. Combined with, again, why did it have to occur there? Geography. You know, there's a huge, obviously the mountain ranges separate the east from the mm -hmm. west. There is no um, rivers, for example, in western Pennsylvania that run east and west. They all run north and south. So you start to look in the differing ways in which this disconnect occurs. It's not that it's a challenge to the Constitution. It's more along the lines of how do we live? And now there's this group of elites that don't understand this concept. And I think you could argue, if you want to take it out a little bit further, to Washington's role in that whole episode, Washington back in his earlier life was a surveyor who spent a lot of time in western Pennsylvania. He would travel up from Virginia over into uh, Pennsylvania through what was then Virginia, now West Virginia, but understood the lay of the land, had an understanding of what needed to happen, but also saw the importance of law and order, saw the importance of wanting to spread the ideas that were embodied within the document itself, which is why he chose to lead the troops as far as Bedford, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. you know, so Washington himself, if you want to look at the Constitution's role in that event, I think you have to look at the actions that Washington took and why did he do it. He understood. He had a, uh, he had a respect, obviously, for the document. And he also wanted to see the nation survive because he was he lived through this idea in the you know the Articles of Confederation and how poor they were. You know, the, the famous quotes that's ascribed to Washington is, and we fought for this right. as it relates to the, the articles. So he understood that. And, and I think when you start to look at what was the role of the Constitution in those early American events, it's more embodied in Washington the person and what he believed and what he had to do to make sure the nation had the ability to move forward under the constitution. Well, that makes sense. Cause it sounds like you're basically saying that the, the whiskey rebellion was not a protest against this new constitution, but Washington's actions. And, and so is it a matter of historians kind of just inflating this event to be bigger than it really should be? Because usually, you know, in all the survey history classes, they always pair it up against Shays' Rebellion during the Articles of Confederation that showed how weak the national government was. But yet they, the Whiskey Rebellion is always presented as how strong the new federal government was. And so is that, do you think that's more of just historians looking for some sort of a balance or a symmetry? Or is it because, I mean, you're, you're saying that it's because of Washington's involvement, which makes a lot of sense. Washington was basically setting a lot of precedents and kind of establishing a lot of the norms for what the new nation is going to look like. So do, so do you think it's more of kind of historians kind of reaching a bit to kind of inflate the Whiskey Rebellion's importance from a constitutional perspective, or is there more to it than that? Well, I think, don't, don't misunderstand my comment in saying, you know, I don't want to de demote the Whiskey Rebellion from importance because it's a very important event in early American sure. history. Um, but, I do think that when it comes to teaching survey courses, we have the ability to like a good rebellion every now and then. That's and, true. you know, we want to take the events of Shays, which happened just a few years before, which nearly toppled the entire federal government for what existed at that point in time. And you don't have that with the Whiskey Rebellion. You basically have, you know, let, let's keep in mind here that the army that formed on the green in Pittsburgh at what is now, you know, the grounds of Fort Pitt was called the Watermelon Army. <laughs> You know, I did not so know that. It's not, yeah, it's not like these individuals were the most well-formed unit. <laughs> you know, I mean, again, they, they were looking to preserve a way of life. They wanted to live is what they wanted to mm -hmm. do. And they felt as though Hamilton, in his ever so elitist form, um, which was total contrary to Jefferson, 
you know, which you can pair Jefferson very easily with those rebels in Western Pennsylvania because he was the agriculture. You know, mm -hmm. that was his focus. And, and that's what you have in that area. So, you know, you, you take Hamilton and Jefferson, you see those two ideas, and there you have your events surrounding it. So how does that connect back to the importance of it? I think it's important to show that the federal government was strong, mm -hmm. you know, because at the end of the day, what happened? The rebellion fell. Now, why did it fail? Because you also have some issues there that you can look at. You had, you, that's when you got to start tapping into like Albert Gallatin, who was also from Western Pennsylvania, uh, Uniontown, Pennsylvania. So you have those ideas there between Gallatin, who appealed to the then governor of Pennsylvania. Um, let's not forget Gallatin survived this whole issue for being even on the side of the, the rebels. Hmm. You know, Gallatin has a bright future in front of him in the federal government. So it's not like the whole thing was all for nothing, but it's more along the lines of, I would say, that rebellion is important for the formation of the nation as it relates to what I said earlier, kind of like a law and order society. But is it an event as largest shays that nearly toppled the entire federal government? No. And I, I would attribute that to Washington's leadership because he did also, like I said earlier, you know, he led the army. Right. Only president to do that since then. Right. From a historian's perspective, uh, the Constitution is important to you and your work because? It is the basis of all law and order in our society. And, and I think we have to start everything from that mindset when we when we negate an element of the Constitution, and I know we can get into differing amendments, and we can apply our modern spin to it, and then we can talk about the idea of an originalist and a contextualist, and, and you know we can have all those conversations, and they're important conversations to have, but you have to look at it through a perspective lens as well. It's very difficult to look at the Constitution in the modern era with that 1790 lens. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Does that mean that I'm saying that, you know, we should apply a modern connotation to everything in the Constitution? Well, no, I'm not saying that, just as I'm not saying that we should apply everything through that 1790 lens. What I'm saying is we have to have openness and willingness to interpretation, keeping in mind what the founders intended, combined with what they had the ability to know based on their era. And I, I say that cautiously because I don't ever want to demean the founders. I'm not doing that in any way. I don't want to say they, you know, I like to talk to, when I talk to students, I like to talk about the infinite wisdom of the founders mm -hmm. because it is very clear of how successful they were in their thought, the impact of enlightenment thinking on them. But do we have the ability to apply their standard to the 21st century? No, I don't think we do. And we need to be careful when we try to do that, just as we need to be careful when we try to go the opposite way, the 21st century, back to that 1790 mode of thinking I referenced. So it's an interesting conversation to have when you want to ha say, well, how does it impact me today? Because it's all about interpretation, it's about analysis, and it's ultimately about perspective too, because you have to look at the meaning of words. And, and that is where I think the historian's role comes in and is vitally important. What do words mean? Do they mean the same thing they mean today as they did back then? So I think that's a roundabout way to answer your question regarding its importance, regarding its function, and regarding the way in which the historian would use the Constitution today. No, that, that's great. It may be roundabout, but that's how historians roll. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, great. Thank you for uh, joining me here, Chris. You're welcome. Thank you. In our next segment, we're going to jump forward in time a little bit and talk to Bob Irvine. So, Bob, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Bob Irvine. I'm an adjunct uh, history professor here at SNHU. Um, I teach graduate classes, and I'm also a, um, a full-time consultant. I work uh, doing development work and uh, primarily with uh, nonprofits and uh, Indian tribes, Mostly in the Pacific Northwest, a little, a little bit into uh, into California and Nevada too. So I guess the West, um, and that is uh, that's my full time job. Um, and I, there you go. That's an introduction. Okay, <laughs> perfect. Sorry, yeah. I wasn't. Your consulting job always sounds fascinating to me, and uh, we we did talk about it in, in a different episode. So I will, you know, encourage interested listeners to go find the earlier episode where we talked about your work because it sounds like you do some fascinating stuff. But for our purposes here today, we'll focus on the uh, you know the Constitution and all of that. And so, as a historian, I mean, you've got your your doctoral degree in history. How how has the Constitution 
relate the U.S. Constitution related to your work as a historian? Well, I suppose in a, in a real direct uh, and formal sense, uh, my dissertation topic looked at the development of, of law, water law in particular in the West, and I, and I focused on Kansas, the state I was in at the time. Um, so, of course, that law is, is grounded in, in the Constitution, and, and so I had to, um, of course, uh, that was one of the areas in which I took a, one of my preliminary exams was constitutional history. I had a constitutional historian on my um, on my committee, so it it had that very direct impact. But I also think that um, the Constitution has a has a, a sort of constant indirect um, impact on my work, whether it is uh, sort of understanding the basis for why things happen, um, and it's it's a really important construct, um, not just the, the legal foundation and the, the the in the formal sense that we all sort of tend to think of. Um, as a knee-jerk response to that question, but it it also is a statement I think of of what ought to be, um, mm-hmm. uh, and and you see that really in the in the preamble, um, you know, to uh, to establish a uh, to form a more perfect union. Uh, that's that's where we're we're supposed to be headed as a as a nation as a people, and so that ought um, is really important both to understand where we fall short and what we're aiming towards as a, as an American people. And, and that comes through um, a lot with my, my work with tribes because a lot of what they can and can't do depends on both the constitution and the way that the constitution has been interpreted and reinterpreted over time. So these sorts of things really, uh, really matter. And to me, one of the more interesting parts of my work is, I, it is the area of my life uh, in which people pay the most attention to the Supreme Court. Um, you listen to NPR, you watch the news, there's there's news of, of recent Supreme Court decisions, but um, traveling uh, on reservations, working with tribes, um, it's surprising how tuned in people are to the latest uh, Supreme Court decisions and what they might mean, whether they're a direct decision about a, about a tribe, um, or not, um, that the the Constitution seems in some ways more um, omnipresent uh, in daily lives. So I think that's kind of a of a, a cool part of, of that part of my work. When you're interacting with tribes, this is something I've always been kind of curious about. So we've got the the U.S. Constitution, which of course is supposed to govern the land, all the territories of the United States. But on on Native American, you know, reservations and tribal land, it's more complicated than that, right? Or because you know you know this better than I do. But is the Constitution still supreme? But then local laws get to kind of get filtered through a constitutional lens, or how do those two systems of government interact? Well, that's that's a really good question, and and there's no um, there's no simple answer, and a uh, you know a legal scholar could spend uh, this podcast and many more um, right. answering that. The, there's the simple answer, I suppose, is yeah, the Constitution remains supreme. Um, tribes retain sovereignty, and there are different tribes. Um, retain more sovereignty than others, depending on the resources that they have, depending on how uh, they contract with uh, the federal government. Um, the Supreme Court has called them a d- domestic dependent nation. Um, so the uh, the supreme law of the land, the Constitution, remains supreme. Um, but different tribes uh, can take back different um, different aspects of sovereignty so that uh, it might be the BIA police uh, force on a reservation or it might be a tribal police force um, or it might be or there might be no police force um, other than say the county sheriff. I've worked on reservations where each one of those situations um, is in effect or is is what's is the law um, and it really, really depends. You know what? What the Navajo Nation does is very, very different than um, than a small rancheria in California, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and okay, that's that's interesting. And so, this is, I think, one of the core kind of issues of the Constitution itself. Of course, is the is the issue of sovereignty and who who has power, who doesn't have power. 
Um, and of course, that definition of sovereignty has changed a lot <laughs> since seventeen. Oh, yeah. The, since, you know, since the seventeen eighties. I mean, back back in the day, I mean, sovereignty was basically what white men, property owning white men, to be specific. But of course, it's obviously sure. expanded a whole lot farther since then in different directions. Yeah, I think that you know, I think that's that's a, one of the themes that when I when I teach um, at the at the community college here in uh, in. Oregon. Um, that's one of the things I try to hit is the expansion of citizenship and franchise, and really who is who is civilly alive, you know, who has standing. Uh, because I think that is um, one of the, I don't know if it's a lens. I'm I'm never clear about that language, <laughs> but I think it's a way to um, examine American history is just to look at that progress. And and again, that's sort of aiming at the odd. You know, we. Um, and you can go to the Declaration of Independence, which I know is not part of the Constitution, but it's still a foundational document. And, uh, you know, that's what we're what we're headed for. So as the ex as the franchise has expanded, as who is a citizenship has expanded, um, the way we uh, then interpret the Constitution also also changes. It's a darn living document. Right. Yeah, and that's one of the things that fascinated me when I was working on my MA thesis. I, I think we might have talked about my MA thesis in when we had our earlier podcast, but the 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 topic of all of it was basic was how California responded to the Fourteenth Amendment during Reconstruction. And the Fourteenth Amendment, a lot of historians kind of view the Fourteenth Amendment as being a I don't know if you want to say a resurrection of the U.S. Constitution, but it's a, it's definitely an expansion of the U.S. Constitution because before the Fourteenth Amendment the U.S. Constitution dealt only with federal laws, federal, you know, trials, federal stuff like that. But the 14th Amendment is one that really forced that onto the states also, because the states hadn't really been bound by the federal constitution before that point. It would only be things that dealt with inter interstate matters, interstate commerce, whatever. But the 14th Amendment is the one that expanded it to cover the states also. And so uh, that was one of the interesting things that kind of fascinated me about that project was the expansion of federal power and federal, you know, federal rights. Uh, suddenly states were forced to um, honor the rights that were supposedly guaranteed in the Bill of Rights and the U.S. Constitution and all of that. And so in my, my project specifically was on how California actually opposed the 14th Amendment um, and the 15th Amendment, which allowed voting for all people, for all citizens, uh, mainly because of the fear of what that would mean for um, Asian immigrants. They didn't really care so much about the freed slaves because there weren't many of them in California, but they definitely cared about Asians. And so, uh, I mean, the Chinese Exclusion Act kind of became the the one of the final kind of manifestations of that a couple decades later. But it was interesting to think about how the state is responding to the imposition of rights, <laughs> which is something that we tend to think of. We tend to think that everybody would welcome that, you know, the guarantee of yeah. my individual liberty and individual rights and all of that, that should not be questioned, but it was quite controversial to actually impose that on the states back in the, in the wake of the civil war. Yeah. You know that, and that, um, as I've as I've come to uh, know more about my uh, my adopted state here in Oregon, that uh, that sentiment was alive and well here. I, there's a great book, mm -hmm. which is it's well written and well researched, but it's hard to read because of the of the content. I think Driven Out. Are you familiar with that that work on the Chinese Exclusion Act? I don't think um, I've read that one. Yeah, I mean, I've read is, others, but that not that yeah, one. It probably came out after your um, after you did your work. Uh, it, it's a great book, um, but but explores that topic. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, that at the 14th Amendment, I think in one of our, is it 601, where we ask students to uh, the question, you know, was Reconstruction and the 14th Amendment um, a, uh, a, a second founding of the nation? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think David Blight uses that language um, yeah. in some of his work, too. And, and I think it's a, I love that question. It, it prompts great discussions because, um, I'm happy to argue it either way, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that, those are great questions uh, that really ask people to, to think um, because they have, a, I would think in my mind, the 14th amendment changed everything. Yeah. And that's, that's definitely what people saw it at the time. Um, I mean, t today, you know, 150 years later, we're, you know, we're, you know, we're used to it, <laughs> I suppose, right. even though surprisingly there are efforts 
in the modern day to try to roll back some of the protections of the 14th Amendment, but that's probably a conversation that we could have on a different episode. But uh, at the time, the people, as, uh, as I was researching, especially in California, but then I also, you know, toyed around with some of the, of the surrounding states, it was a pretty common belief is that this is a big deal. It's a really big deal. And so I, I kind of think that a lot at the time, a lot of people would have agreed with people like David Blight saying that this is kind of a second founding. You know, it may not affect my daily life. You know, I'm still going to be selling my, you know, whatever to the same people. Right. And I'm still going to be employed by the same people and all of that. But when it comes to the the guarantee of rights, the way you're treated by governments, that was a pretty dramatic change. And I think people at the time definitely recognized that. Yeah, you know, and I wish that I... um. I wish I could figure out a good way to, to teach and use the slaughterhouse cases. Um, yeah. But, you know, every time I get to that, especially with, uh, with undergraduates, um, you, you can just watch the sort of the eyes glaze over yeah. um, and, and, the, and the sleep sort of strike people. And I, I, it's, such an, it's an important case, and it says so much about the attitudes at the time. Um, but I, I, I'm not good enough to make it interesting. At least I haven't figured out how to do that yet. <laughs> well, just for people that aren't aware with it, what, what was the slaughterhouse um, decision or decisions? Uh, yeah, it's, it was a, a case centered on the city of New Orleans. They were trying to regulate uh, butchers and where slaughterhouses could and couldn't be located. Um, and these, uh, the butchers responded with a, with a court case. And these are mostly um, you know, white Americans, uh, white American males, who are arguing that the 14th Amendment should have prevented the state from, from doing this. Um, and I think the Supreme Court was at least a little surprised that, uh, that whites were trying to use the 14th Amendment to, to further their, um, their own argument, that that uh, was really... Um, an amendment that had been crafted for the uh, for the freed slaves, um, and and in the end, the the Supreme Court couldn't believe that the intent of the legislation was to really do what the legislation, what the constitutional amendment says, and that is extend the Bill of Rights to um, to block state actions from affecting individuals. So it basically. Um, it, to my mind, it sort of shut the Fourteenth Amendment down until it's it was rediscovered by the Warren court mm -hmm. in, the, in 1950s. Yeah, exactly. And, and I agree Did that I the, slaughter that right? yeah, <laughs> the, and, and I agree that the slaughterhouse cases are uh, incredibly important because yeah, they're the, um, the Supreme court taking a very conservative view of all of this and kind of rolling back the powers of the 14th amendment, like you said, until it was kind of rediscovered during the civil rights movement, um, which interestingly enough, kind of as a side note, that's when California actually ratified the 14th amendment was in 1960, uh, 1959. Um, so that, which wasn't, which not, which isn't surprising, but it's, it's always interesting to that. tell people that <laughs> California didn't ratify it for 91 years until after it was first, um, uh, I mean, it became, obviously, California didn't stop it from going into the Constitution, but California did refrain from ratifying it until 59. Um, so um, uh, anyway, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating topic, the, the slaughterhouse cases, but you're right. It's, as soon as students find out it's not about it, you know, it's not about actually slaughtering something, <laughs> I think the eyes kind of glaze over. And legal history is difficult to to make interesting unless you are already interested in it, and uh, that yeah. that is unfortunate because that is a very important case. It doesn't have the same drama as like Plessy versus Ferguson, but it it had in some cases similar effects because it rolled back the powers of the federal government to do a bunch of things that race reformers had hoped the federal government would be able to do and would do. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm glad we. Uh, I, I wasn't ready, quite ready for the test. I should have had the. I should have had the case up in front of me. <laughs> I don't remember all the details, so I don't know. Some of the details may have been wrong. <laughs> but the overall, the, the the big picture thing is that yeah. the significance of it is that yeah, the court was rolling back some of the authority of the Fourteenth Amendment, and so yeah, the, the the details we'll leave that for Wikipedia to figure out. But we we got the we got the big question right as as far as I know. I'll let someone else weigh in if we're both wrong, but. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so that's great. So it sounds like your work has had a lot of kind of 
the Constitution has been relevant to a lot of your to your work in a lot of ways over the years. And so, just kind of to wrap things up here, you know, just big picture, why do, in your mind does the Constitution matter to historians or to the general public? What, what, what's your take on that? Boy, you know, I'm uh, I've always been pleased that I had a, a pretty solid basis in in constitutional history because it comes up so often um, in, in conversations about modern politics. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it is surprising to me how, um, I want to say ill-informed, but there's, there's a lot of sort of myths and half-truths and poor understandings. Um, and, I, and I think that it would be good if we, if we had a more solid sort of, or a more robust a discussion about the Constitution, just as as a public, because that really is the the basis. It sets the it sets the guidelines. It sets the rules for what we can and can't do, how we can move forward, how changes are made, um, and it is it's too much. Uh, too often, I think sort of like a magic box. Like stuff goes in, stuff comes out. We're not really sure how. We know it's important. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows it's important, but um, but. The, but it's not it's not magic it it should be something that um that we're in more touch with i think that that would i think that would create a more civil discussion and i think it would make a for a more um responsive body politic but i'm i'm some days i'm more optimistic than others about that happening yeah, I agree. And I think that's, those are some very good points. I think the, we tend, you were mentioning the Supreme Court earlier. And so we tend to kind of just sit back and let the Supreme Court kind of decide things. But the reality of it is that we are all empowered to decide this stuff. We may not have the, you know, the, the, the power to, you know, stop legislation or something like that. But, you know, the, the greater the public knowledge and the public understanding of the Constitution, I think that is a, a noble end. And I think that would lead to hopefully much more civic and civil conversations among Americans, which are sadly in kind of short supply these days. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, I, I do. And I, I think it's, I think there's, I think there's a lot of potential drama there. I, I wish I could figure out how to teach it better. Um, or present it in a way that is, uh, I don't know, just, just dare I say, sexier. <laughs> that Constitution, the same sentence. Uh, but, but that would grab people's interest because I think, um, I think it is, it's really important, and it's, and it's such a unique American thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, the British have a Constitution, but you can't go look it up. Right. Um, you know, the, the American Constitution is what, 45, 4,600 words long? And uh, the EU Constitution is 160,000 words or something like that. It's, it's a very, very accessible document. Um, it's written in the time it was pretty plain language. It's still fairly plain language given mm-hmm. um, what lawyers, you know, what we've all seen lawyers do to, to the English language. So <laughs> um, it, it shouldn't be so, uh, so inaccessible. Uh, there's that. I repeated the word accessible and inaccessible, but I, I think it's there. I think it's a great, amazing American document and um, we ought to celebrate it. I really think we should. Yep. And that's, that's, I suppose that's why we have a constitution day. It's our effort to try to celebrate it and try to spread the word a bit more. Dare I All right. say amen now or, you know, good. No, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for taking time to talk to me, Bob. This was really informative and um, thanks for all your help. Oh, thank you, Rob. I appreciate the invitation and it's, it's always fun to talk to you. And finally, let's talk to the new guy, Jeff Zarnack. So Jeff, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, my first career was as a police officer for the city of Manchester Police from, excuse me, 1979. I retired in 2002 after 23 years. During that time, I had gone back to school and continued to do so uh, as I uh, started uh, forming my second career in academia, i.e. teaching with a small on-ground college in southern New Hampshire. I say small. It was actually five campuses and ended up as the chairman of that that department, of the Department of Criminal Justice for that school. Uh, Eventually, uh, migrated, made my way to uh, do some consulting and 
here I am at Southern Hampshire University uh, right now overseeing the development of a brand new criminal justice program, et cetera. I have a bachelor's degree from St. Anselm College in criminal justice, master's degree in human services administration from Springfield College. And my doctorate is in leadership studies with a focus on cultural criminology from Franklin Pierce University and married. And I've got uh, four grown kids, seven grandchildren, and here I am. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I appreciate the, uh, the, the the fullness of your mini biography there. <laughs> Shy of a photo, that's it. Right. So we, I, uh, in the earlier segments here, I was talking to historians that looked at the Constitution at very in different eras. And so today I'm, I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about kind of in the modern era, what is the importance of the Constitution? And so right. you being a, a specialist in criminal justice, the, the importance of the Constitution to your work is probably obvious. But, you know, yeah. for, if you were coming at this from a, a, you know, in your intro to criminology classes or whatever, what, what does the Constitution mean in the modern day to someone specializing in criminal justice? Yeah, and I think it, it's a great question. And But when you say, when I look at modern day, uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, things that are happening today that may seemingly have a higher impact on the Constitution and the language and how it's interpreted. But I think ever since it's been written, it's it's held that same it's, uh, level of accountability relative to the dictates of the formation of government, everyone's responsibilities therein. And then you have the second half, your amendments, which really... Um, with tremendous foresight, detailed uh, the desired behaviors of the government and its relationship to us, the people. So I think it, it is probably just as important today, yesterday, as it was, say, 100, 150 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. It may it didn't really receive uh, as much involvement in the court system relative to interpretation until uh, the Burger Court during the 1950s, et cetera. And I mean, not saying it hadn't been pulled out of the draw by, say, the S- Supreme Court of the United States to assess various cases, appeals, and otherwise. Um, I think today people are more aware of the Constitution. I think there's, um, you know, there are certain activities or behaviors that um, have a direct correlation to uh, the Constitution. You know, uh, if we think about today in the modern world relative to gun control and all the tragic events that have unfolded over the last few years, I'll say, um, Mm -hmm. you know, looking, you know, naturally, uh, your modern day reference does come into play specific to, you know, the uh, Second Amendment. Um, so it is, I, like I said, it's as important today as it was when it was first written, um, relative to, but in terms of its, um, activity, uh, or its involvement in everyday life, I think you're seeing it probably being tested more than any other previous time. Mm-hmm. And has the Constitution been relevant to your specific work in criminal justice, like in uh, your oh, specific yeah. research projects, that kind of thing? It is. You know, it is the gorilla in the room for the police officer. And what I mean right. by that is we, you know, <clears throat> we, we are problem solvers. It relates to human behavior, the decisions that make that people make, you know, and if those, just, you know, the things that they do ha- are codified. In other words, you know, a behavior uh, skirts and or violates recognized legitimate statute, city ordinance, state statute federal law, et cetera. The laws that have been written that uh, guide us relative to the desired behaviors of our free people. Um, where this comes in is, you know, every, every police officer really has to have an, a superb handle on the amendments. Okay. Some are naturally going to be per se, some to some extent, maybe more important or come into play a lot more, such as, you know, say the first amendment, when we're talking about freedom of speech, what can people actually say? And there is a lot of confusion in some respects. There's a lot of contextual confusion that can occur. Uh, naturally, amendment two, you know, uh, we talk firearms mm-hmm. and we don't have to belabor that. I found in my world, <clears throat> I think amendment four probably came in, uh, came into play uh, as the most active uh, most, uh, let's just say, important one because, you know, um, it, it really guides us relative to <clears throat> what we're capable of doing or not doing, okay, to respect the civil rights as so outlined in that particular amendment. 
And, what and I, the Fourth Amendment is the uh, guarantee for due process. It is. It's the right of the people uh, yeah, to be secure in their persons, right? Houses, papers, and effects. You see how broad the language is, too. So it's always going to be yeah. subject to what what does that mean? You know, it's against unreasonable searches and seizures. Now, let me stop right there. Um, how this becomes, again, hyper important to the active police officer, the working police officer out there that is, uh, you know, that may need to go get something that has value to the system. In other words, let's call it evidence. If you retrieve that and the court determines that you got it and it was unreasonable how you got it, now you may, quote, lose that evidence. So you can see every single day, thousands of times, thousands of times a day, Rob, across the country, officers are put into positions where they, you know, are enjoined. They have to uh, secure evidence in order to successfully and fairly and equitably um, bring char- forth charges that that are true, all right, uh, against someone mm-hmm. because we're talking about potential loss of freedom, <clears throat> you know, which is the, say, the arterial backbone of this document here is freedom, right? And mm-hmm. when does, when do you lose it and when do you keep it? So, you know, we have, officers have to be very, very careful, very articulate, I always say this, Rob, you know, uh, especially for all the criminal justice students, because of this document, <clears throat> this is the most writing intensive discipline because you have to be able to enter into the English language so everyone, call it a jury of your peers, everyone understands exactly what you were doing, what you were seeing, how you did it, what, where, when, and how, and why at a particular moment, at a particular time, which led to the arrest, right? Which is this, basically, it's a seizure of a person and the, and the, um, you know, the temp- at least a temporary uh, elimination of their freedom. And you have to be mm-hmm. extremely clear. What do you mean when you say, I seize this reasonably? And uh, what did I do to do that? And that goes on. And if you're going to search something or seize something, you can't violate that. And you have to be able to articulate it before a judge. All right. So the, they even thought about, this is how advanced they were back then, Ron. They thought about this. They said, you know what? You know, one person's perception may be good, but not perhaps good enough. So we need somebody who's an expert, you know, in probable cause, which is right there in the Fourth Amendment. All right. What is probable Mm -hmm. cause? And you have to swear to it, which is holding you unequivocally to the truth. All right. And then you have to describe the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. But they're going to have a, a, somebody with a second set of eyes on that and call it a magistrate or a judge who is capable of determining what's known as probable cause. That unto itself, Rob, I'll give you an example. When I was in the police academy, we had to memorize the standing definition of probable cause specific as it specifically applies to policing. And we mm-hmm. were literally thrust into a, the gas chamber with a mask on and the commandants were in there with their masks. And then we had to take the mask off and try to recite the entire paragraph of probable cause. And to this day, I remember what it was, is facts and circumstances <laughs> that would lead a reasonable person to believe that a crime has been or is about to be committed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that's always, again, subject to interpretation, subject to examination, analysis, et cetera, dispute in a court of law. So that fourth amendment has, it really is the lifeblood you know, that has a direct correlation relationship to everything that the police are capable of doing legally. So, like I said, if I was to give a trophy to one amendment, it would be that one. <laughs> I like that. The um, my my research was in the Fourteenth Amendment, so I'd probably give the trophy to that one. But, you know, we can <laughs> we, we, we can hash that out over to later. <laughs> I'm with you. But it's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting because to think that the 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 officer on the street is also thinking about have the interpretation of the Fourth Amendment because, you know, from a layperson perspective, is not involved with police officers and all of that. I I would imagine anyway, based on, you know, conventional wisdom, whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it, that the it it always feels like the courts are there to kind of figure that stuff out. But it's interesting to hear that the police officer on the ground is actually making interpretations of that also, which makes perfect sense. I mean, officers aren't going to want to expose themselves to any kind of liability or or anything like Uh that. So it makes sense that they are kind of making that calculation on their own. It's just interesting to hear that that's happening at multiple stages in the legal process. Because like you said, you've got the officers on the ground and then you've got, you know, district attorneys or the prosecutors, and then you've got the judges and they can work its way up the court system, appeals courts and all of that. So it's interesting that the 
that this 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 amendment is at play at so many oh, levels yes. of our system of our legal system. Yep. And the way they wrote it with some element of vagueness, right? Um, mm-hmm. They they really what was what's great about that is the fact that they didn't try to overwrite or overspecify or dictate. You know, they left it subject to interpretation, right? And they also, if you think about it, like to your point, Rob, <clears throat> the responsibility for legal interpretation of this amendment as applies to the thousands of interactions police officers have every day it places a, is a tremendous responsibility. And I always tell police officers when I train them or whatever, I said, you have to be as knowledgeable and as astute, okay, about the impact of the Constitution and all the decisions as a lawyer who will have weeks and or months to review what you did, okay? And right. so it, you have to, and I don't, I'm not sure, I mean, TV and movies do not do, they do a tremendous disservice to what police officers, more often than not, have to really have a tremendous grasp on, all right? and then again, their ability to explain it with utmost accuracy so that somebody who really understands the tenets, the stipulations, and all the byproducts, i.e. those court cases that have been decided uh, courtesy of the Fourth Amendment and how it was interpreted. They have to have a a tremendous amount of knowledge on how to apply that all the time, you know, and it is a matter of liability, but it's also at the same time, you know, I I don't, I, the uh, police officers don't want to see the wrong person go to jail. You know, um, you know, that does it happen? It does. Do people make mistakes? Yes, they do. That's another topic. But, um, mo- mm-hmm. you know, most police officers, no, we don't want to see anybody go to jail. You know, and I can tell you this. I know, I'll give you an example. I know that if I can't satisfy the tenets of this of this amendment and <clears throat> the subsequent court cases that are have been a result of this, whether search and seizure cases or otherwise, I can tell you this. I know that I have at least two people that I, I am firmly convinced circumstantially that they murdered someone. Okay. And a couple of homicides mm-hmm. I was involved in. And I, I or know the people I work with, we could never charge them because of this. We could not de- develop enough probable cause. All right. That would lead a reasonable person to believe that this person had committed the crime. All right. It's, mm-hmm. it's very difficult uh, you know, a lot of people are walking free today, even in spite of having committed a lot of crimes, because police departments, you know, <clears throat> it's a matter of integrity, uh, will honor, you know, the stipulations that this amendment has bred. You, you know, you, you just can't do it. Uh, and there's nothing worse than falsely accusing somebody naturally, but it's also just as bad as to bring somebody to, 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 to uh, court, arrest them and charge them, run them through the proverbial legal ringer, uh, and, and knowing full well that they're probably not going to be found guilty and you've wasted a lot of time, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we're, when, in, in all these thousands of situations, Rob, these things are running through a police officer's mind. You know, they, you know, you think, what am I going to do now? And do I have enough to do what I'm capable of? Can I do this without violating the fourth amendment? You know? And so, and I mean, it does go for all the amendments too, as well, like the Fifth Amendment when you're interviewing or talking to people and what they, what they can say or not. And in some situations, I mean, yeah, they'll have time to kind of sit and think it through and all that. But there's going to be other situations where it has to be a snap decision. What am I going to do mm-hmm. right now? Because there's something happening right now that I have to and, deal with. Right, and, and it can be, it can be a, a deadly encounter, Rob. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but before I lose that thought balloon, it can be, a, you know, a. a, a you know, when you when a police officer shoots someone to kill, and they shoot to kill, all right, it is a seizure. All right, it is the ultimate form mm-hmm. of you know, removal, immediate removal of someone's rights. All right, and that's naturally yeah. nerve-wracking because you have to be justified. You know, you have to demonstrate to court that you had probable cause to believe that this person was either about to commit serious bodily injury and or death to you and or a third party. You know, and you've got to be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the thing about it too, Rob, I got to be honest with you, you know, no, I mean, I think to me, the average citizen out there should know this better and should know the court cases that, is, that have come out as a result of the constitution. They should know it better than anybody else. Uh, and I've always found it remarkably disappointing that I can tell you right now, if I was to walk out of this building, walk down the street, and I would ask the first five people I saw, what does the fourth amendment guarantee? I'm going to tell you, I'm probably, I'm probably going to bat a thousand, not, not one person going to tell me all or any of the elements. 
irrelevant. Right. Yeah. Once you get past the second, things get fuzzy with most people. And that's not right, you know, because the Constitution doesn't just guide or dictate, you know, or regulate, say, government behavior, police behavior. It also regulates civilian behavior. You know, okay. Because I'll give you an example. Like the First Amendment says, you know, you know, people interpret uh, free, like example, free speech. There's a million, you know, you have a million people, you have maybe a million different interpretations. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean you can say anything you want. Okay, you can't use prov- you know, you can't uh, provoke someone to a violent reaction, and you can't run into a movie theater shouting bomb or fire. Uh, you, you know, you there there are restrictions on that, and a lot of people don't understand that. Um, they don't. They they have their own interpretation, or they have snippets, but they don't really understand the full depth and breadth of the Constitution, the amendments, and again, what's very important is the court cases that have come out as a result of that. Uh, we, you know, those things are distributed mm-hmm. all the time. Anytime the Supreme Court, and they're always, there's always on the Supreme Court docket, there's always some case related to police activity. I think at any given time, you have at least a dozen yeah. Miranda-based uh, cases, and that, that, that is a direct, that's a, a derivative of, or byproduct of the Fifth Amendment. All right, so uh, the, this, thing, this thing comes into play all the time, but like I said, I find it remarkably disappointing that the average person really doesn't understand their rights. And they rely upon the legal system to interpret it for them, i.e. attorneys. And the attorneys have to take a very, very good look at what's going on and make sure that they vet and scrutinize and assess you know, what has been written about their client and whether or not uh, what, has, what has been said can actually withstand, with, with, you know, withstand uh, you know, a court analysis and a judgment. So you know, representation is critical too. So I, I knew a lot of attorneys who constitutional experts and some of them not so much uh, but i think every, everyone mm-hmm. should be a constitutional expert because this 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 document is so critical and it comes into play in everything we do every day regardless of your profession right and that's the purpose of the constitution day activities that are happening nationwide on september yep. 17th so hopefully that yep. will spread the word a little bit more i hope so i hope so i will too. champion that cause though the cows come home Excellent. Well, thank you uh, for joining me today, Jeff. Not at all, Rob. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us today. We all hope that everybody listening in will now turn off the phone, iPod, telegraph machine, and whatever other device you're using to listen right now and go find a copy of the Constitution to study. Shouldn't be too difficult. I have a pocket-sized copy from the ACLU on my desk right now, along with a graphic novel adaptation by Jonathan Hennessy and Aaron McConnell, which provides a surprisingly compelling story of the document and the world in which it was written. So that's my recommendation for this episode. And now we're done. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions or comments for this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, shoot me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For Chris Klein, Bob Irvine, and Jeff Zarnack, I am Rob Denning. Excelsior! <laughs>